Hello. Hi, how are you? Great. How are you, Chanel? I'm doing good. Yeah, I had to shut my telephone off because people like to call me. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm, I'm, hope I'm doing this correctly. Oh, yes. Okay. It's, yes. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I really enjoyed your talk at Women in Language. And I was like, I've never heard about language nesting or how that was or like a lot of indigenous languages. And I, I just found the whole process to be fascinating. And I said, I want her to tell her story to my listeners because I think a lot of people will get a kick out of it. I mean, people hear about people's language learning stories and a lot of them are kind of the same, but yours just stuck out to me as so different. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so uh, would you like me to focus on language nest then and my research there or? Um, Whatever you want to do. Okay, so yeah, uh, first of all, hi, my name is Eve Kohler or uh, Eve Okura Kohler. I have a PhD in linguistics. Uh, my dissertation was on language nests and it was requested by the Smithsonian Institution's uh, Recovering Voices group. It's a language and cultural revitalization initiative. And uh, feel free to interject with any questions or comments while I'm talking. Um, but anyway, so so language revitalization is this idea that uh, some indigenous or in languages are endangered. So there are fewer and fewer people speaking these languages in fewer and fewer contexts. And the risk is that if the languages themselves aren't necessarily endangered, but their use is endangered. So if uh, time keeps going with no one learning these new learning these languages. For example, the children learning some dominant language like English or Spanish instead of the language of their grandparents. Uh, in a couple of generations, no one will be left who speaks the language fluently, and so they're at risk of disappearing in that sense. So, language revitalization is trying to uh, set up programs, I suppose, to. Uh, create new speakers and whether they're first language speakers babies uh, and exposing them to the language or adults learning the language as a second language and I traveled all over the world studying language nests which are a method of language revitalization they're kind of like an a language immersion daycare or preschool and they vary in their structure and how they're run but uh the concept is kind of the same, you have a, an immersion context for infants or toddlers, small children, uh, to be exposed to the target language. So oftentimes it's their heritage language, it's the language of their grandparents or ancestors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes parents will put their children in these programs who, um, it's not their heritage language, but they're interested in learning the language of the area. And um, the idea is to expose children to the language from an early age so that they can acquire native-like uh, speech. And a lot of times these children's parents and grandparents don't speak the language, um, so they can't learn it at home. So these communities will take a few elders or people who do speak the language fluently and put all the children with those people so they can grow up hearing it. 
Um, so that's kind of the basic gist of it. Any questions so far? Um, I'm just curious that some of the um, places that you had gone to document these languages mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. were the were the inhabitants um, kind of resistant at first to the idea, or I mean, how did they feel about it? Because I mean, there are some people like you know some Native American communities where they they are very secretive about their heritage, their language. They want to keep it within their own people they don't want outsiders because of you know everything they've had to go through throughout the generations mm -hmm. you know i was just curious to know like you know how how did they you know feel about opening up their culture and their language to people that never spoke it before um to so with regard to the actual language nest itself with people coming or with me coming to learn from them about their language nest or oh, um, the, the actual language nest, you know, the people oh, okay. from, from there. Right. I, I suppose that each language nest um, might be run differently. And there may be some language nests that keep it only to heritage speakers, you know, people mm -hmm. who are members of the of the tribe or the uh, community. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ones that I visited were seemed to be quite open to uh, whoever wanted to learn the language. And, um, for example, in northern Finland, in an area called Lapland, uh, there are Sami languages spoken. So they're indigenous languages of Finland. And they're linguistically related to Finnish, but quite distantly. I mean, they're, they're as different as, uh, say, English and German. Right. Um, so they are distinct languages. But um, these, so uh, Inari Sami, mm -hmm. North Sami, and Skolt Sami are the three main Sami languages spoken up there. And uh, they did have children who were in the Inari language nest, Inari Sami language nest, who were not Inari Sami themselves. Um, and I think maybe there may have been some North Sami families who had put their children in an Inari Sami language nest mm -hmm. because they wanted their children to be trilingual in Finnish, North Sami, and Inari Sami. Uh, so those, those language nests seemed quite open to it. Um, and I know of other ones as well. Um, and if a community doesn't want it to be open to outsiders, then, then that's okay too. And, and we respect that. Um, but it seems that the more, the greater number of people who are learning the language, the more likely it is to survive. Right. Right. So, so it's, um, I mean, it's uh, I completely respect any community that doesn't want anyone else to speak right. their language. At the same time, um, it is to the benefit of survival, the greater number of people and the greater number of contexts in which that language is spoken. And mm -hmm. it, it helps it to survive to be more open with it. Um, I'm just curious, like, how long does it take to, like, document just one nest of people oh so so just to clarify i didn't um document i didn't document any languages in the sense of traditional language documentation right so in, in linguistics language documentation you know someone would go and and describe a language and write up a grammar and make recordings mm -hmm. i did not do that i i was visiting language nests and interviewing the principals and directors the okay. language nest teachers and uh, just learning about the programs and how they set them up and 
Okay. Um, did a little bit of uh, attempted an acquisition study, but most of the valuable information was from interviews with people. Uh, so it, I was at each one for only a couple of weeks. Um, and, and some language nests were okay with being um, made public, the name of them and which specific language nest it was. Others requested to remain anonymous, which I did leave them anonymous, but um, they gave very valuable information. So I, I was in um, fin Northern Finland for a couple of weeks studying the Inari Sami language nests and, and the whole Sami language revitalization uh, program up there. And then a couple of weeks in New Zealand studying a Maori language nest and um, a couple of weeks in upstate New York near the border of Canada mm -hmm. on the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation um, at the school. They have a language nest there and, and they were very open with everything. Um, and then uh, an anonymous Hawaiian language nest. And, and I'll note here too that the term language nest comes from Maori. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know, Maori is the indigenous language of New Zealand. Okay. So it's a Polynesian language. And it's related, the language itself is related to the Hawaiian language up in Hawaii, okay. as well as Rapa Nui, the language of Easter Island. Uh, so it's a, it's a very geographically spread language family or language subgroup. But uh, in Maori, the term is kohangareo, and it literally means a nest of languages. And um, in Hawaii, they're called ahapunanaleo. Mm -hmm. So the term language nest is a, is a direct translation from Maori. And, and really, the first language nest started, they think it started in New Zealand uh, for Samoan language, uh, heritage language speakers. So... Samoan families who had moved to New Zealand but wanted their children to still be able to speak Samoan mm -hmm. set up these kinds of uh, daycares or immersion preschools for Samoan learning. And then it is believed that that model was adapted for, to revitalize or to reclaim the Maori language. And from uh, New Zealand, it spread to Hawaii for Hawaiian and then all over the world. Oh, Wow. What what made you want to uh, go into this particular field of study? Well, uh, you know, language and culture preservation is very important. Or I hesitate to use the word preservation, but reclamation. Uh, I found, as myself, I am diaspora. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm half Japanese, grew up in Hawaii. And I didn't grow up speaking Japanese. And as an adult, I went to Japan for a couple of years and learned to speak the language, learned a lot about the culture. And I realized there was so much to understand about my family and the way my father was uh, that was embedded in the Japanese language and culture. And I had no idea before. I thought they were just family quirks or my dad's personality. And of course, there are those elements as well. But uh, so much gets passed down through culture. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize that for example, I mean, it, with languages, we're talking about indigenous endangered languages. But mm -hmm. just for an example, I'm using this heritage language case of Japanese. Uh, a lot of times Asian Americans are might be perceived by um, Caucasian Americans or European Americans as 
lacking confidence or apologizing too much or and I realized that those are just grammatical um, parts of Japanese language and that's just how and also um, how the language is used, used the language is used socially mm-hmm. uh, it's expected to apologize a lot to thank a lot and there are um, politifiers embedded in the grammar to humble oneself and to lift uh, the outside group and um, I realized that when you take so in this context some of my relatives and I are diaspora taken out of a con of a geographic place and put in another geographic location separate from the language and culture of our ancestors right but in the case of indigenous languages people are still in the same geographic context a lot of the time so they could be right there on Long Island in the Hamptons like one of the daycares I visited the Shinnecock uh, daycare and they could uh, be exactly where their ancestors were but the language is no longer spoken and another culture and language has come in and kind of taken over and in that sense they become a linguistic diaspora. So they're displaced linguistically and taken out of context in their own physical context. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that a lot of times cultural practices or mindsets last outlast even the language, but they don't make as much sense without the vehicle of language to contextualize them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So those same behaviors in Japan that are seen as normal when transmitted through the vehicle of the Japanese language. Now you take them out of that context, put them in America and try to express those ideas through English. And it takes on a whole new shape. I'm not saying whether that's bad or good, but it takes on a different meaning and it's perceived differently socially and it's responded to differently. And sometimes those responses are then internalized and a person it can be very confusing about identity <laughs> uh, with regard to identity. And I, um, for example, in Canada, in British Columbia, uh, there was one study that, sh- or a couple of studies that showed that first people's bands, so indigenous bands in Canada um, that had at least maybe 50, 40, 50% of the people in the band spoke the native language. Mm-hmm had significantly reduced youth suicide rates. And so there was a direct correlation even, and this was accounting for other factors like access to public, uh, to education and health, um, public health services. So it seemed that language was more significant in reducing youth suicides than any of the other factors in the study. And one would ask, why would that be? Because of that thing, I, that very thing I just talked about with about a linguistic diaspora, right? that when nobody in your community speaks the language anymore, or very few people speak the language, you become disconnected from the generations, from your parents, your grandparents. I'm not saying it's um, a terrible thing all the time. I mean, I think people can be very functional, healthy, happy, successful individuals without speaking the language of their ancestors. Uh, and, and some of these studies, though, it showed that there was a lot of uh, more mental and emotional health problems that resulted in actual physical death for a lot of these youth uh, related to identity and language. 
and that when the majority of the community could speak the language, for some reason, it reduced youth suicides. And uh, one uh, professor of Hawaiian language that I spoke with, Kali uh, Fernandez, he pointed out that when studying another language like French or Spanish or German in school, one can go on a study abroad to that homeland, to that country, and be immersed in the language completely to learn it better. But he said, here we are in Hawaii, and he's trying to teach his students Hawaiian. Where do they go where they can be immersed in it? There are still communities, a couple of smaller um, communities on Ni'ihau, uh, a privately owned island that where Hawaiian is spoken more regularly. But the rest of the state, um, the rest of Hawaii, the uh, rest of the islands don't uh, speak it as fluently on a daily basis. And there are individuals who do and who are valiantly speaking in their homes. And it's, and it's now on um, announcements in the airport and on buses, but um, it's not in everyday, every context right. uh, language right now. So, so that's another difference, right, between learning another language and an indigenous endangered language. Where do you go to be immersed in it completely? So then people often have to create their own environments like a language nest where that um, a, a deliberate immersion context is created. Wow, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, because I know um, I have a, a, a lot of um, different ethnic backgrounds in my um, mother's side of the family. Uh-huh. And we have like Chinese and Mexican, Puerto Rican, Irish, German. Wow. Um, well, my two, of my, one of my cousins is part Chinese, African American, and Mexican, and then the other one is half black and half white. I think with some German. Then my other cousin's son is half black, half white, with some German and some Irish. But he identifies as black. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on my grandmother's side, we are um, about 40% West African. Oh, wow. With cool. the language being Swahili. We just found mm-hmm. this out recently. Oh, wow. And How did you find out? My aunt did the, the 231 and me. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. 23 and me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I had planned on doing that just to see, because I've always been into genealogy and uh, geology and people's backgrounds and histories, and I've always been a geek like that. So um, that's just on my grandmother's side, which is my mother's side. I don't know hardly anything about my father's side of the family at all. Mm-hmm. And so I know that my mother's girl um, father, who's no longer alive. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, he was a double war vet, Korea World War II, and so he, his grandmother was half Blackfoot, and her mother oh, was wow. ha- whole Blackfoot, 100. percent Wow. And he was like a quarter. Mm-hmm. However. 
there was some Caucasian somewhere down the line because his he had ten aunts and uncles, three aunts and six uncles. And one of them were so fair they could pass for white. Oh wow. So there's some yeah, somewhere down the road. And but we never knew like you know, how far back our ancestry went until my, one of my aunts did a, a ancestry look up and they found, they went all the way back like 1863 or something. Oh, wow. But I mean, that's as far as back as you're going to go on that end. But then mm-hmm. when my aunt did the 23andMe and she found out about what was on just my grandmother's side of the family, it was so amazing. I was like, oh man. <laughs> wow you know, and we're we're such a multicultural family that you know we don't mm-hmm. racism a thing for us right and so yeah but you know i mean for me personally being a history buff i love learning about different people's cultures and i've probably been about uh four or five years into being in the language community and just meeting people from all over the world and starting my podcast show last May and doing interviews since July, I, I've learned so much from all the people that I talked to, you know, from, I mean, Japan, and um, Great Britain, and Canada, and South America, and uh, Spain, and yeah, it just, it's amazing, you know, how language connects us all. But yet, yes. but yet here in the U.S., it's not as prevalent as it is in Europe or Asia or other places where mm-hmm. they speak multiple languages. I mean, because it's just like verbatim for them. It's, it's right. nothing. For us, it's like... Mm-hmm. Do we really have to do this? You know, I mean, we don't. We don't even have an official language in this country, which, you know, I mean, technically, if you really want to be honest, uh, English is one language, but then we have German and Dutch and Spanish and French and Portuguese. So, I guess if, if people really want to be honest, it's not like we have like. Spanish is our main language. English is our second. No, it's, it's, you know, everyone speaks English. Or if they do learn another language, it is Spanish, but it's either because they need it for a degree requirement or they have to have a, a language for school. But it's not like I'm going to go out there and start hanging out with my friends and the Spanish speaking community and, you know, only speak Spanish. No, it's, it's, it's never you utilized i think as a way hello again yes okay we i was able to save what we already did oh great yeah (laughs) i don't know why it did that um it did that with someone else i had recorded with and come to find out people's phones were affected all on the east coast oh yeah no worries it happens. Um, but as I was saying, they, it to me, it's like when you're learning a language here in the U.S., it's more of a chore than it is enjoyment or embracing someone else's culture. 
I mean, unless it's an individual thing because she wants to do it. Right. That's one thing. But a lot of the people in this country feel like, oh, well, I don't need another language. Mm-hmm. When in fact, there's so mm-hmm. many people coming from all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. Like, I mean, for me personally, I live in Akron, Ohio, like 50 minutes away from Cleveland. where I'm Akron, born. Ohio? Yeah. Oh, cool. And so... We have people from the Middle East here. We have people from, you know, um, Asia, all over Asia, uh-huh. all um, Eastern Europe, South America, uh, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, you know, and I mean, it's just crazy. But I, I sat there and I said, well, you know what? I want to learn some of these languages. Because you, I have we have Japanese people, Korean people, people who speak Mandarin, people who speak Thai, people who speak, mm-hmm. you know, Swahili and mm-hmm. Persian and Dari and wow. Pashto and Arabic and uh-huh. Russian and you know, so it's like okay, well I'll pick the ones that I enjoy, I'll learn those, and I mean the idea of just being able to say hello how are you have a nice day nice to meet you my name is how is your family right that that goes a long way mm-hmm. you know and they don't feel like they have to sacrifice their heritage languages because they're living in the U.S. and right and a lot of the people that are living in the U.S. who are U.S. born and raised it's all about English even if they're speaking Spanish as an example on a bus Mm-hmm. Somebody wants to get upset because mm-hmm. they're speaking their like, well, they're not talking about you, mm-hmm. you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, but a lot of people don't realize that they're not talking about them, that they're mm-hmm. just having a regular conversation. It's just in another language. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's a lot of it's fear-based, mm. you know, because they don't understand, they don't know. So they assume, or if you know the language, can you interpret for me what they said? Or they could, I'm like, uh, no, that's just not, that's not nice, you know, and I'm not going to tell you what they said, uh-huh. you know, because that's a private conversation. Right. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I give it up to people who immigrate over here and yes, they want to make their lives better by learning. I mean, they learn it because they have to use it for work or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're so happy to be in the U.S., you know, because wherever they came from, it was the living conditions probably were not as great as they are here and they want to make a better life and they want to make their kids American. But I know if I were to move somewhere, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't lose my roots, like, you know, who I am, but I would still want to learn the language, you know, so it could be a little bit more easier, Mm -hmm. you know, to make friends or to, um, you know, acclimate myself into their society. Right. Yeah. Language opens up a lot of doors. It's almost magical sometimes. I think because it, it breaks down barriers, it builds bridges, it shows people that you're interested in who they are and that you appreciate it rather than judge it or reject it. And uh, I remember uh, for before I was doing linguistics, I was doing anthropology. And uh, when I was in Guatemala, in the highlands, I was living in a Quiche Maya community. Mm-hmm. And I didn't speak Quiche Maya. I did speak some Spanish. Uh, my Spanish isn't perfect, but it, I can get by conversationally. Right. 
and I was trying to learn Kiche Maya, and I just knew a few phrases like Sakarik is good morning, or Shakik is good afternoon, and I would just say that to the uh, the older women who would walk through town who were like midwives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing a public health study out there, and as soon as I'd say something in Kiche, they'd get all excited seeing this foreigner say something in Kiche, and they'd chatter to me and they'd hold my hand and. I felt like such a bond with them, even though I, and I just have to say with the amtah, like, I don't understand, sorry. <laughs> um, I couldn't understand anything else, but just being able to say a greeting, like you said, really uh, can build bridges. And um, yeah, I, I remember as a kid, I don't know why, but I, I kind of struggled with identity more than some of my siblings. Mm-hmm. What am I? You know, my mom is um, from upstate New York and French, English, Swedish, German, whatever mix, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Irish, Italian, everything, European, basically. And then my dad is Japanese from Hawaii. And I was like, I'm not, you know, native indigenous Hawaiian, though I would love to be. I'm not Japanese from Japan. I'm not European. Like, what am I? I don't fit into any one category. And I think a lot of people can relate to that nowadays, um, where there's a lot of mixing and, and, uh, multiculturalism and it's okay now I've embraced that okay I don't fit in into a category and it can also be an asset and you can um, then adapt to different uh, cultures and learn from and celebrate other cultures but I remember as a kid wanting to one of my goals and I still have not completely accomplished it was to learn to speak each of my heritage languages and for some people that might be unrealistic because you have like 13 15 different um, heritage languages. Um, in my case, I was at the time, I just thought it was Japanese, Swedish, English, German, and French. And um, I've learned some, I've now can speak Japanese. I studied Spanish instead for some reason. Um, studied some German, studied Portuguese, Hawaiian, uh, ancient Mayan hieroglyphs, ancient Hebrew, a, a lot of ancient writing systems, classical Japanese, but I, I still haven't learned some more of the modern heritage languages. So next would be French and um, I'm so interested in Arabic and um, yeah, just, I I love, like you said, I love languages, love learning about different people. And I do feel like when you visit uh, some of the homelands of your ancestors and learn about their culture and even, you don't have to become fluent in the language, but even studying a little bit about the language and seeing how, how people use it because it's not just you have an objective idea and you express it in either English or some other language. I, I feel like each language kind of thinks differently and the things you communicate are different, right? Mm-hmm. What, you, what people choose to say is often different in a different language and culture. Right. Um, and uh, you probably have experienced that. But um, there's this philolog- a Spanish philologist, Jose Ortega y Gasset, he was a contemporary of Heidegger, and he said, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, but um, he has a paper on the agony and ecstasy of, of translation. And he says that each language, and um, Alton Becker, um, anthropological linguist or linguistic anthropologist, however you want to phrase it, he quotes this as well and, and comes up with his own way of expressing it. But they say that each language is an equation of silences and utterances. And each language says some things at the expense of not saying others, 
because it's impossible to say everything. So each language kind of chooses what things they're going to express through words and what things they're going to stay silent on, which things are important and which things they'll sacrifice. And so each translation from one language to another then um, is full of, as uh, Ortega Gasset says, exuberancies and deficiencies. It says more than the original thing said, and it says less than the original thing said. For, like, for example, in English, you'd say, it's important to say who did what, right? Uh, this boy kicked the ball, whatever. In Japanese, it's not so, you don't really state the subject overtly. And there's no different conjugations on the verb for who did something, but more so what their social status was in relation to the speaker. Um, and so um, that social relationship is, is expressed as more important than who actually did it. Um, so each language just has a different way of, of communicating and a way of seeing the world. And, right. um, and, and then when you learn even just a few clues about your own heritage languages, um, your parents, your grandparents, then great-grandparents even, maybe some of those cultural mentalities have still filtered down, but without the context of the language. And, and you might be able to understand better, oh, that's why my family is this way, or that's why I think this way. Um, right. That we're, we're a lot more connected than we realize. Right. Uh, we're not just, like America can be so individualistic. Right. And it's not always a bad thing, you know, it can be creative. But I think sometimes we um, inaccurately see ourselves as kind of an isolated individual when we're really connected, connected through centuries of, of thought in our families. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because I retook about four years ago a world history course. Uh-huh. from the Hantley School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Braille and awesome. it was like it was like 18 chapters but I, I took my time with it because I was just doing it for me and I love history so much that you know I said I'll do world history course okay fine well out of all the history that I read about I loved Asian history Russian history French history and the Middle East the most interesting and because I think well, I've always had a love affair with France and Russia for a very long time. Uh, I never had the opportunity to learn French or Russian when I was in school. So the one language I learned um, was Spanish in community college. And then after I did all the Spanish classes they had, um, you know, I didn't take any other languages. I studied theater got my degree in theater, went to film school, did oh, wow. that, um, got my TEFL certification to teach business English and English for young learners. And then I decided at 38, I would study Russian independently, did that, went to French, Italian, some Dutch, some Brazilian Portuguese. Um, now I'm on Cantonese, Turkish. Oh, wow. And high that's amazing yeah so for me personally i really connected with like the struggles of what these people had to go through mm-hmm. especially the russians the people in the middle east and the asians mm-hmm. and how you know they were just like basically overpopulated by like western europe and the mongols and it, you know and it it just shows like what what they've done 
you know, what they've brought to the table, um, you know, with their own culture, you know, how they fought back and, you know, said, okay, we're not going to allow for outsiders to, um, you know, change who we are to, uh, you know, be one, one particular way, whether it's, you know, Western thought, you know, they had this Eastern, you know, philosophy, sensibility, their own faiths, their own, you know, and it, it I, w- I could really identify with that. Um, plus, I've been a big fan of um, Buddhism and Confucianism and Eastern philosophy and Gandhi and all that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, for me, I was like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind learning like certain languages that were that old, mm-hmm. you know, over a thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And so French was one of them. And then Russian. And then I said, I tried Mandarin, but I liked Cantonese better. Maybe because for the historical context of the fact that it was actually one of the oldest languages, you know, and, and Mandarin piggybacked off of Cantonese. And then I also like Taiwanese too and how it sounded. Mm-hmm. Along with Japanese, I, I plan on um, learning Japanese at some point. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm the only one in my family that speaks anything other than English. Oh, wow. So, I mean, they call me the geek in the family because. Well, that's awesome. You know, because I, I enjoy it so much. But I do it because I like making friends and I mm-hmm. like communicating with people and watching all kinds of movies and now that you know technology has evolved and there's text-to-speech where they can read the subtitles to you out loud in whatever language i i watched bad boys 2 yesterday with thai subtitles wow so and i mean my thai is very basic but just to have that the 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 subtitles going in the background and listening you know it it gives me some um more input yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so because I learn by ear, right? And and um and I do use a little bit of braille, very little. Mm-hmm. All of it's audi- all of it's auditory. Oh wow, that's impressive. Uh, even though I mean I do have some residual vision in my left eye, I'm not enough to read print anymore or to see anything further than three feet distance wise. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, I I pretty much am able to get around and and I'm very independent and I have my guide dog and. You know, we're all over the place on a bus and a plane or something. That's um, amazing. So, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, languages have changed my life. And I, I've been able to meet so many people and, you know, interview people that I find interesting and share their stories. And while sharing their stories, I'm telling my story about my struggles with, you know, language learning and coming from a visually impaired perspective because, even if you live in the States, you might be classified as legally blind. That doesn't mean that you're completely blind. It doesn't mean that you can't see anything. Uh-huh. Everyone's vision acuity is different. Right. And everyone has a different vision problem. Like I have what's called retinopathy of prematurity. Uh-huh. And so therefore, I have to, um, because I was born three months premature, um, one pound, 13 ounces over oh, 42 wow. years ago, um, due to lack of oxygen. And my eyes didn't develop as well due to me being born three months 
premature. Um, they were able to save the sight in my left eye. They weren't able to save it in my right eye. They removed the cataracts twice. One came back for my right eye. Um, I might have some light perception in that, but it's sporadic. So, like, it'll pop up every once in a blue moon. It's like this big flash of white light. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, I can see absolutely nothing out of it. Wow. And um, I, I was a big print user mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time. And then as of about six years ago, my visual acuity went from 20 over 2400 to reading three feet in front of me counting fingers. Um, and I mean, I used to be able to read like big print books and, and, you know, all that type of stuff. But now I, a lot of it is, I do a lot of audio, a lot of listening to eBooks, um, audio books. I still watch movies. I still can do that. I just can't see the small details, but I'm not worried about it because most of the movies are audio described now. Right, right. And so, you know, I, I, like I told Richard Simcott a week ago or so that I, I, I'm, I came to the party a little late with the subtitles because people have been for years able to read them in whatever language. And now that technology has advanced to the point where people can have the subtitles read to them out loud in the language of their choice, depending on the movie and what subtitles are supported. Um, You know, that helps me learn more about certain movies, certain cultures. Like, I'm really into Thai movies and Cantonese movies and Japanese movies. And so I said, you know, I want to be able to learn these languages to a nice level where I could turn off the English subtitles, listen to it, and enjoy it in its natural language without having to have subtitles. Right. And, and but the good thing is I get to learn about the culture of the you know and they they have such a beautiful culture and they're very family oriented and and I see that a lot um in Asian culture and I also planned on learning um Swahili uh Egyptian Arabic and Hindi at some awesome point. so and I said I just take my time I'm not someone that likes to rush it uh-huh. You know, I, I enjoy the process for the most part and just communicating with people and letting people know, you know, it's okay. You don't have to rush to learn something, mm-hmm. uh, especially in language. Yeah, because people say, oh, well, I could be fluent in three months. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not realistic, uh-huh. you know, or well, I've learned this group of languages from this family. I was like, uh, that's great. I'm happy for you. I mean, I would rather have spoken quiet as kept Russian, Italian, and French, and then went on to something like Turkish, Arabic, Japanese, Cantonese, and Thai. Because that way I could spread my language knowledge out Mm -hmm. or not just have, you know, all five Romance languages and then every dramatic language and I mean, okay, first of all, am I going to these places? <laughs> you know, do I have a passport? Not yet. Yeah. But I look at it as who's in my community, who I can communicate with. And that's kind of how I'm, I'm doing it. Because we have a big Hindi population. Oh, awesome. And they're looking for people who can speak Hindi to help out. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll learn a little bit of Hindi and see where it takes me. You know, but um, yeah, that's- I mean... For me, that 
learning about, you know, indigenous languages and learning about, you know, trying to document them and, you know, people doing that sort of thing. I mean, because all I hear about is either you translate the written word or you're, you know, a conference interpreter or simultaneous interpreter or you teach, but I, I don't really hear stories like yours too often. Yeah, um, the Department of Linguistics at the University of Hawaii at Manoa here in Honolulu, Hawaii, mm-hmm. is very big on uh, documenting and revitalizing indigenous languages. And uh, so it's kind of fun. Uh, while I was a PhD student there, some of my classmates, you know, over the summer, everyone would go out, do their research, would come back in the fall, and one person would have gone to Indonesia and another to... Uh, Russia and another to Colombia, each studying a minority language in those places. And um, then you get to hear everyone's stories later. And it's just a a wonderful group of people who appreciate diversity and who are working to preserve and celebrate it. And um, yeah, so. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I, I mean, when I was listening to your talk, I was like, wow. No, this is so fascinating. I mean, I I actually watched every single talk live. That's amazing. And and, I mean, because I didn't, I mean, I knew about some people, but I really didn't know about a lot of other people that were out there, you know, doing different things with languages and, or teaching their kids languages or traveling the world or doing tourism or, you know, working in the business world or, you know, I just, I wasn't familiar with. And so I said, you know, I paid this money. I'm going to take full advantage of it and and ask questions. And it was it was quite the eye opener for me. I mean, I got to meet a lot of cool people. And I mean, I think I was shocked when I actually was selected to do a lightning round talk. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! That's wonderful. Yeah. So I mean, I I have to say, uh, thank you for your talk. It was really inspiring. Thank you for being there. That, that's very kind of you. Uh, it's it's always fun to connect with people like you. And it's amazing that you're doing this podcast and connecting people all over the world with a uh, love for language. Um, I, I don't know if you have any other questions, but be- before we ended, I wanted to ask you a random language question. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you're from Akron, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I've heard an interesting language fact about Akron mm-hmm. uh, that... They're the people, so what, what, I was wondering, what do you call the strip of grass between the street and the sidewalk? Is there a word that you guys use there? Um, well, I'm kind of like an import into Africa. Oh, I see. I've been here for like, it'll be four years in October. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's, you're, you're trans. Okay, I've heard that people there use the term devil strip for the grass between the sidewalk and the street. And it's the okay. only place in the world where people say that. And there, different dialects in the U.S. will call it something else, but right. um, it's a it's a fun little forensic linguistic fact about Akron, Ohio. And uh, I was at a linguistics conference once with the forensic ling- linguists from uh, Hofstrom, Hofstra mm-hmm. University, who said that a criminal was identified once because his ransom note used the term "devil strip." And he was the only suspect from Akron, Ohio. <laughs> oh, wow. 
So, so dialects, I mean, we're talking about language learning and indigenous languages, but also dialects can be fascinating and, and language varieties and, and how the way we use language is unique to the place we are. We're oh, in. yeah. I mean, because I didn't know how big the language learning community was here until I um, volunteered for this nonprofit organization called um, Project Learn Summit County. Mm-hmm. And they help people with their reading and their math. They help them with their citizenship. They help them with their ESL um, learning. And I volunteered my time like four hours a week to wow. uh, help with the ESL. And I mean, they had everybody from like Iran and Yemen and Yanmar, which used to be Burma. Mm-hmm. And, and they had people from Iraq and people from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Mexico, Puerto Rico, South America, Brazil. It was, I think there was someone from Serbia, Ukraine. Wow. Um, they had a whole bunch of Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, from the mainland of China. Mm-hmm. And we had to separate them because we can't have them speaking Chinese. They had to speak English. But they were very dedicated students. Mm-hmm. But they didn't want to go outside and utilize their their English. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an activity where we had them use all four core skills, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And so we had like a little scavenger hunt where they had to go a certain part of downtown with a volunteer and three students. And they had to find the different landmarks and places and ask questions and ask for directions and everything. And they couldn't use any, like, devices. Oh, wow. Yeah, they had to use pencil and paper, which is good. Mm-hmm. Because people so much highly depend on their technology for everything, they forget how to do things with just a regular pencil and paper. Uh, and how to talk and, to other people. Right. <laughs> and so they did very well. I they had to give a presentation after the fact, after the hour was up and my bus that came. So I had to go, but it was so amazing to watch these people. And I got to practice some Spanish while I was outside. I got to practice what little Arabic I knew, what little Japanese I knew. And it was, it was an amazing, I did it for a whole year. And um, I said, now that I'm learning Cantonese and Thai, I want to take the time for like a month or two and, do some volunteering at one of the nonprofit Asian organizations, you know, because I know they probably need help with English or whatever. Uh-huh. And and this way I can practice my, what Cantonese I know and my Thai. And I mean, I really enjoy, you know, the process of being able to like really communicate with people in, in another way without having to use English constantly. I mean, I love English. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful uh-huh. language, but when that's all you ever know all your life and you know you kind of want to open your mind to the world and what possibilities are out there right you know and I mean I I never thought that I would be embraced so much in the language learning community like I have been for the past four years I mean people want me to come to like Langfast and a polyglot conference and I'm like I would love to go however Chanel doesn't have a passport and Chanel doesn't have about 2k <laughs> fit somewhere. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I, I honestly want to get together with some of the polyglots who live in the U S 
uh-huh. and see if we can create our own little thing because there's some people that can't go. Right. That's a great idea. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great thing to have. I mean, if, if they have land fest, then why can't we have something? Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And so true what you said. I mean, growing up, I, I myself am an American by citizenship. I wish I had grown up speaking several languages like my European or uh, friends, but, uh, um, or friends from um, Guatemala who speak Mayan and Spanish. And, but I, I had to learn languages as an adult. And I love it. But uh, there's a joke among linguists and language learners you may have heard. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. And what do you call a person who speaks one language? Mm. American. Oh. <laughs> you know, but I, I would think, honestly, it's so weird to me, though. Because that same joke can apply to people in, from, from Latin America. Oh, that's, that's true. Same, that same joke can apply to people from mainland China. Yeah. That same joke can apply to people from Russia. I mean, anywhere where they have... One dominant um, language. Right. That's true. That's very true. And it's so it's so weird to me because like Russian was something that I taught myself how to speak. And I went and did what most people wouldn't have done. I spoke for a whole year. Wow. How to show and then I oh spicy <laughs> um and then I I listened to nothing but Russian from six AM to midnight, seven days a week. Wow. I just had it in plain plain. And I, I, and I, well, I listen to Putin all the time. Well, mainly because he's a great speaker. I don't uh-huh. care about the politics side of it. I, you know. But anyway, I did that for a whole year. So I spent two years doing that. And, and the third year, I wound up having a conversation with a friend of mine's mother that spoke no English for two hours. That's amazing. Just from learning on your own, listening. Right. Wow. And... I mean, it's it. I mean, my grammar might suck, but I mean, I'm I'm understood. That's amazing. You know, so I guess when you look at it, that's why I tell people take your time. You know, mm-hmm. my slogan is, language learning is a journey, and a process. Don't mm-hmm. rush it. Enjoy mm-hmm. the process. Mm. You know, because do what you love doing. If you like reading fashion magazines, read them in whatever language. If you oh, like watching movies, advice. read it in every language. If you like music, do it in that language. Of course, I'm not going to write a grocery list in Russian. But, you know, I, I I will watch a movie. I will watch news. I'll listen to podcasts. I'll, you know, dictate something in Russian. I mean, half the time Siri doesn't work very well. But, right. Um, but, I mean, people understand that I'm doing a lot more dictation because I don't physically write. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really focus on the writing aspect. I focus on reading with my display, my braille display. And then I focus on listening and speaking. And so I'm a very big proponent of doc, uh, Stephen Crashing, comprehensible input, a lot of input. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't understand it at first, you will start to the more you listen. Mm-hmm. And then... Also, um, I love Ollie Richards' um, stuff, um, and like because he creates all his stuff through story, all his language courses. 
like they're for A1, A2. Mm-hmm. But it's it's worth it. Like mm-hmm. he has books. I mean, he's coming out with more books. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy the fact that someone's coming out with something that's accessible. Uh, a lot of people aren't doing that. They'll write a book. Like Stu J. Raj has a Thai Fundamentals book. But it's in hardback or paperback. But it's not an ebook. Uh, and, so, and so, therefore, I wouldn't be able to purchase it. Mm-hmm. Because... I, you know, it's not accessible. Or mm-hmm. Anthony um, Medivere has a book, but they're all in paperback. They're not an ebook. Uh. So a lot of times when these people make this stuff, they're not thinking about digital at all. They're right. just looking at it from the print side of things. And I said, well, when you are teaching someone something, you might want to come into um, the idea that you're going to have people that are print disabled where they're not able to read a physical book. Right. And so therefore, but no one's thinking like, you know, it's the bottom line. Right. So that's a good reminder, accessibility. Right. And then I also, uh, enjoyed the fact that Kirsten and Lindsay and Shannon made their stuff accessible mm-hmm. because I, I kept honing that a lot I said if you guys going to do something make sure it's 100% accessible because you don't ever know if you're going to have someone that has minimum vision where they can't read print anymore no mm-hmm. vision at all mm-hmm. You know, they might use screen readers they might use a braille display they might not even have a braille display but a screen reader and they have to be able to navigate, you know, the site, whatever site it is. I mean, because a lot of times if you're going to enter a foreign field, you can't enter that foreign field because it's not accessible. Oh, wow. Or you can't navigate the page because the way they have it made, it's not it's not made for a screen reader. And if you live alone and you're trying to buy a book from them, you can't do it because their site is not ADA compliant. Right. So, I mean, I've tried to home that to, like, Benny Lewis and other people. And it just, to me, it just goes through one ear and out the other. Mm. And I said, well, okay. Is it about making the money? Is it about helping people? Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking about teaching someone a language, you're talking about everybody. You're not just talking about a small group of people. And now there are more people in the millennial in the Generation Z that are being born with multiple disabilities. And so they might have ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, adult autism. They might have um, dyslexia. They might be blind, completely blind. And they might have some of these disabilities on top of the blindness. They might have, they might be visually impaired. Um, not high partial where they have a slight visual impairment, but they can still drive because there's people out there that's like that. But visually impaired and they they might have ADHD, you know, or dyslexia or something on top of the blindness. And so therefore you have more people that have more disabilities, especially neurological ones, where they learn differently. And so if you have everything's, I think, going more digital. Mm-hmm. you know as far as buying things 
And I mean, people have like their libraries of like language books, and I think it's great to still have books. But at the same time, if a person can't access that because they can't read it because their eyes are weak or whatever, mm-hmm. then I would assume that you would want it either an audio, audio and ebook. Yeah, not, P- not PDF because. PDF you can't really use with screen readers. Uh, it's not it's not it's not accessible. Like it the words would be on the screen, but the screen wouldn't be able to read it. It just looks at it as a blank screen even though there's words on it. Right. It has to be an ebook. Right. Okay. Right. Like TXT, HTML, or rich text format. Because you might have someone that has Mac and uses pages. Uh-huh. So you might want to do it like in a Word file. Or you might want to do it in um, a T a rich text format file, you know, so it can convert correctly. Uh-huh. That's great so, to know. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to let people know that because it's like, okay, if I were to go to a conference, how accessible would it be? Mm-hmm. You know, would I be able to get stuff in a format that would be accessible for me? Mm-hmm. Or would it be like, okay, well, I'm not paying all this money to go somewhere and I can't have a Braille copy or something. Right, right. Or or I can't have, or if the person can't come or people can't come, but they still want to, can you stream it? You know, because you'll get more people to listen. Right. You know, depending on how big the venue is, you might have 6,000 people or 3,000 or 2,000. And people from the all over can come and hear the, you know, particular, the opening ceremonies and all of that that goes on and certain sh- workshops or whatever. They can listen in. Mm-hmm. And then, like, let's say there's people that are on the internet and they want to ask a question and they want to type in a question. They can do that and that person can be heard. Right. You know, they, they might not be able to participate, you know, um, like, physically be in the room but they are there Mm -hmm. you know virtually I would think that would be great like I've mentioned that to like all of the organizers of all the different um events and they were like well that's a good idea um we might take that under advisement but and I'm like sitting here thinking to myself like well if you want more people to come to these things and and for all intents and purposes, realistically, a lot of people can't afford it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't afford to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to go to Slovakia. But I can open up the internet, type in a web, search for the site, and click in when you guys go live and listen to it like I was there. Yeah, that's the beauty of technology. Though It's made the world shrink so we can communicate with people in any language any country at any moment oh Um, yes and that and i mean i i I guess if if people in the u.s like like i'll listen to the nfb convention every year and it's like being there i don't have to go to vegas this year i can just listen to it and you have more fun doing that than spending hundreds and thousands of dollars going across country Right. You know, so, I mean, I guess someone's like, well, why don't they charge for it? You don't charge for streaming. 
<laughs> you know, that's not something you charge for. I mean, because I look at it like this, there are people around the world that will listen in and get so much from that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, if you can listen to a podcast every week, then you can listen into the Langfest or the Polyglot Conference or uh, Polyglot Gathering. And if it's more about you want to get more people to attend, well, if the person can't attend physically, but they can still, you can have an attendance of people streaming, that brings your numbers up too. A great deal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I guess some of my friends and I, we were talking about that. And I said, well, okay, is it about the money issue? Um, because a lot of people would love to go. They just can't afford it. Right. Yeah. And, and the language research I did around the world at the time, I would never have been able to afford it, but it was just because it was a, a funded project right. that it gave me that opportunity, which was great. I mean, and- this is, yeah, that's, it's an amazing thing when you can like I do plan on getting my passport this year I do plan on going to Langfest next year um for my very first polyglot experience in person I mean but that's exciting but Montreal is not that far from here as opposed to going on the other side of the world Mm -hmm. you know so I mean I've actually asked people I was like wouldn't it be great if they brought like the polyglot gathering to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. You know why? I I guess they want to keep it in Europe, and I was like, "Do you understand how much it costs to get from the U.S. to certain parts of Europe? It's really expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap. I mean, it's I mean, you can get a flight from London to Spain for twenty bucks or thirty bucks or something. You know, depending." I mean, it's out. It's real cheap, as opposed to three or four hundred dollars from going to Cleveland to Florida, for instance, mm-hmm. round trip. So, I mean, we don't have that luxury of having cheap flights anywhere in this country, you know, hardly. Mm-hmm. And so, it 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 would be nice to see that, I think, or at least get with a couple people who would want to make their own language conference in the States because I I didn't realize just how many people had attended from the U.S. Women in Language. It was over 200. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow. Like, we were number one. Like, there was like 500 people worldwide, but we had the most people. So I had no idea how many people actually love languages in this country. Until then, when they announced the statistics. Wow. So, you know, I'm I'm encouraging people, if they want to start something, call me up. <laughs> you know, because I think that would be a great idea. That's good to know. Yeah, that's great. That's a great oh, idea. Yeah. But um, could you, before we go, because we're at like 43 minutes, and I know we have like 15 minutes on this already. Um. Before we go, can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to find out more information? Uh, yeah, thank you. So I do have a website, which I need to update, uh, evekohler.com. That's E-V-E, 
as in New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. uh, Kohler, K-O-L-L-E-R.com, evekohler.com. And uh, you're right, I'm not sure how to make it um, audio accessible, I've, um, but I'm going to try to look into that and see if that would be possible. Um, I uh, recently, so I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Hawaii. And mm-hmm. I just, as of this week, accepted a, a tenure track position as a professor at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Awesome. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It will be teaching there this fall. And it's in the Department of Cultures and History. They'll be teaching classes, history classes with a spin from the perspective of linguistics and archaeology, because I used to be an archaeologist. Oh, that's um, awesome. So um, one of... One of the classes I'll be teaching that I, I get to choose the topic myself, and I'm really excited about. Um, I just decided yesterday it will be the history of writing and symbols from cuneiform to emojis. And oh, awesome! Um, talking about how writing has changed over the ages and different writing systems around the world. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, I mean, because even Braille has changed. And... Oh, right. Thanks. For, and I will do a topic. Uh, section on braille that that's yeah so. because now now we don't have just america we don't have american braille anymore we have unified english braille because of all seven countries that speak english oh wow so they're able to share documents and stuff without having back channel um back translation problems because you know each country has their own punctuation right. their own spelling their own... so we just decided what you know canada u.s united kingdom um uh South Africa, Nigeria, um Egypt, what is it? Australia and New Zealand all came up and said this is what we need to do in order to make ourselves um more equal in regards to information and being mm-hmm. able to read literature and all that. So now they they teach UEB to people now and um, people are using they're still using Nimeth code for math mm-hmm. and science but they're using UEB as well you have a choice now wow. for mathematics and I mean it's 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 amazing you know how that's come along I mean I, I can actually read Russian Braille Italian, Dutch um, French, Spanish Oh my goodness. I haven't learned I haven't learned Thai yet, Cantonese or Japanese, and I heard it's a nightmare. <laughs> so, well, well, mainly because it's tonal based. Yeah, but I'm good at picking up the tones. Right. So I don't think it's going to be that bad. I mean, I'll get a copy of Harry Potter in Japanese. Oh, fun. Ebook, ebook, because the the audio book is way expensive. Uh... Um, but you know, I I don't my learning the writing systems i mean my braille display does like 17 different braille codes from around the world so chinese and japanese korean vietnamese um i believe turkish um swedish um polish and russian um norwegian danish dutch italian um of course unified english braille french german um, I don't think it does Romanian. I, I forgot if it does or not. But it's like 17. Oh, in Arabic. And wow. It actually, it actually, the Arabic, it does go from right to left. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So, so once I start learning like the alphabets to these, I'll be able to really um, deep my, you know, sink my feet into learning it. But I mean, ninety percent of it, I just want to speak. So right, it's... you know, yeah. But I mean, it's always good to be able to read and write in those, just so I can say I'm literate uh-huh. in that language as well. I mean. I can learn how to type it and stuff. That's not once you learn the alphabet, you have the the keys, the keyboards, mm-hmm. the digital keyboards. You can learn how to to type, you know, spell and stuff. So and that helps too. So right, and uh, sure, and then I'm sure there's some uh, speech to text um, software for a lot of those. Yeah, languages. actually, with VoiceOver, you can download the languages to your phone. Mm-hmm. And which I've done for the ones that I want to study per se, mm-hmm. and um, I even have Hindi. Oh wow! But I haven't, I haven't touched any of the Braille codes because I'm focused on the speaking aspect. So I'm using like Mango languages, innovative language learning, um, TuneIn Radio, SBS Radio, and I'm using um, YouTube along with um, Memorize as well. And I eventually want to get some of all these courses because um, I like the way that he does it mm-hmm. through story. You know, I like it in context mm-hmm. um, pretty much because you learn more. And I, I do listen to music in like Italian, French, Spanish um, as well. So, and I'm starting to get into K-pop a little bit. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's my journey pretty much and um i love the fact that you were able to share your journey with everybody here today thank you so much thank you so much Chanel, for letting me be part of your amazing podcast and for your inspiring stories about your language learning and um oh and you asked how people could find me. So just to dif- differentiate me from other Eve colors in the world, which there are many, um, you can look, if they are looking for my research, it's Eve and then Okura, O-K-U-R-A, Kohler, okay. K-O-L-L-E-R. So those okay. three names, Eve Okura Kohler. Um, okay. But my website is evekohler.com or eveokura.com. Okay. So, well, thank you so much, Chanel. It was great talking with you. You too. Take care. Have a great one. Thanks. Bye.